Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning out there. Happy, a happy after Thanksgiving Day. This is Saturday, so we're two days away from after Thanksgiving. I hope you all had a wonderful time with your family and your friends and whoever you spent Thanksgiving with, whether you, you cooked, if you celebrate the holiday, whether you cooked or you went over somebody else's house. I just hope you had a wonderful time. I think it's a great it's a, we need excuses to uh, stop our normal rushing around to get together with people who mean a lot to us. So ho- holidays like that are good reasons to pause and 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 make make it just be committed to spending time with people that we we that are in our lives who who love us and we love them. So ha- happy after Thanksgiving Day here. At Off the Shelf Radio, and I want to I want to welcome you, our loyal listeners who've been with us for it's been eleven years, and then for the people who uh, uh, you might be your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf, you're looking for something to do on this Saturday, November 29th. I want to welcome you to again our loyal listeners who I truly appreciate and thank for being with us for eleven years, and to those who are tuning in for the first time, welcome to Off the Shelf for November the 29th. It is just I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and value you. Uh, I, I really, really do. It's an absolute joy to have you here with us. For those who are tuning in for the first time, I, I want to introduce myself. I'm your host, Denise Turney, and I'm coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I, I thank you again for your support. And I encourage you to go out this holiday season if you're looking for a gift for yourself or someone else and you like you love to read a good novel, and you like mystery and romance. You like to see characters evolve throughout a novel while you're being entertained. Then I really encourage you to pick up a copy of Love, Pour Over Me. It's very thought-provoking and deeply emotional. The, the main character, he and his father have a, a very complicated relationship. There's also a relationship with the main character and a woman in his life, and you get to see both of these relationships and this man's friendships he's developed with these four guys he meets in college. You get to see what they do with each other and and away from each other, how it helps them all to evolve. And, again, it's love pour over me. If you don't see it on the store shelves, just ask the clerks for it. It's in ebook and print form. Some places where you can get it are ebookit.com. And that's e b o o k i t dot com, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Walmart, iTunes. Again, it's in print and ebook form. If you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk for it because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And now, let us go and meet today's special guest. This is this is something I'm truly thankful for. Always the wonderful guest that either a publicist will tell me about or I'll research. But lately, the last few years, people have been coming out to me through a publicist to be on Off the Shelf, and I really appreciate that. But I learn something from every guest, and I hope that you do too. So today's special guest, she is a book author, a music lover, and a blogger. And she loves collecting fascinating quotations. You know, when you see those positive quotes, there's some quote that makes you think or really, really gives you the strength to go after something that you really want, something you've been putting off. Today's guest is also the author of the book, Terracotta Beauty, and I hope I said it right. Terracotta Beauty is spelled T-E-R-R-A, off-the-shelf listeners, T-E-R-R-A-C-O-T-T-A, beauty. And who is this amazing woman? She is Jola I hope I don't mess up her name, Jola Naibi, and if she, if I do, I hope she corrects me. You can check her out online at j o l a n a i b i dot com. Again, it's j o l a n a i b i dot com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Jola. Hi, Denise. Thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. That was very, very kind of you. Oh, we are, we are we are just. Uh, I have to let our listeners know. I we had to reschedule Jola because my electricity went out a couple of weeks ago, and so she's been so gracious to 
come back with us a day after a, a holiday, I mean, a couple of days after a holiday. So I really, really appreciate you doing that, Jolo. One thing I like to do here on Off the Shelf, we have had so many guests. I, I'm going to say maybe over 100, I mean, a lot, a lot of guests on over an 11-year period. And i like to give our listeners backstory before our guests start talking about their writing or their businesses. We've had business consultants on. We've had business owners on, editors, you name it, in and out of the, the generally the small business or the literary field. i like to give them a little backstory on each guest so they feel like they, they know the guests a little bit before we go into the questions. So what was life like for you, Jola, growing up in Lagos, Nigeria? Well, it was very interesting. It was different from life is here. Um, it was a lot of family, and there are similarities between life in the U.S. and life in Nigeria in terms of um, you have family, but you also have friends who kind of morphed into family, so you have aunties and uncles. Um, I grew up with my parents, and um, I had four brothers, so you can imagine how interesting my life was as an only girl. Um it was um there was a lot of emphasis placed on education in our household. If you didn't study you you know you were chastised um you were, you were always looking forward to the future when you had finished school and you be- began to you know build a life for yourself um It was interesting in terms of the fact that we were exposed to different cultures, so it was we lived in Lagos, but many times through the books or some of the television shows that we watched, we were, you know, being transported to other parts of the world, as far away as Australia, the UK, um, the U- US. So by the time we were able to, you know, cut ourselves from our mom's apron strings, so to speak, certain things were not, at least for me personally, were not strange um, because I'd been exposed to them in reading. We also did travel a lot when I was growing up. So, I mean, two weeks in the UK would mean that by the time I was living there as a young adult, it wasn't strange. So um, life was good. Life was interesting. Um, I guess I lived in a middle-class household, so it wasn't as difficult as it would have been for other people who would have been struggling Um but um, and I'm thankful for that because I had a lot of privileges and opportunities, and even though we also had exposure to people who were not did not have the privileges that we had, it made us appreciate what we had and also made us strive to help those people who were um, struggling. Oh, okay, okay. I knew I used to actually dated a guy from Nigeria, and family is very, very important. I know it is in other parts of the world, too, but not. it used to be more so in the United States than it is today, but that's something I really appreciated about uh, Nigeria. Now, is 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 Lagos still one of the fastest-growing cities in it's Nigeria? And it, I'm sorry? I said it certainly is. Do you think that's because of where it's located? I know it's a port city, or is it because of... The businesses, the uh, would you say it's more of that the marketplaces, real estate? What do you think is causes it to be uh, to be the fastest growing city in the country? Well, I think there are a number of factors which contribute to the vibrancy of Lagos. I think the people are the key. I mean, the people are so driven, and that's some of what I tried to capture in the book. Um, the people are really driven. So it being a Port City also helps because it kind of it's at the edge of the world, and you know we have a lot of people coming and going. But I think the resilience and the you know the way people are so keen to get things done, you know, has contributed to the fact that yes, it's growing. People, I mean, the people make up the city, and so the businesses, like you mentioned, are being run by people who are determined to make something happen, and so. They're the ones who are the building blocks for whatever Lagos finds itself going into. Um, okay. Yeah. Now, how how long? Now we're getting into your coming over to the United States. How long did you live in Lagos, and why did you leave the area? So, when did? How long were you there before you came to the U.S.? And what brought you here to another country? 
Well, I mean, I've always had an adventurous spirit. So um, I lived in Lagos, and then I, I actually left to go to school in the U.K., and I lived there for a few years, too. And then um, coming here, I had a job opportunity, which I decided that, you know, that was the next big adventure after having lived in two major European cities. I'd lived in London. I'd lived in Geneva. So I was like, hmm, let's see what happens in, you know, when I cross over to America, and it was, it was, a, it was. I mean, I think it was a good decision. Um, um, I have been exposed to a lot of, like, I live in the D.C. area, so it's kind of the melting pot for all sorts of cultures and things. So I like the fact that I, you know, was able to take that opportunity when it presented itself. But I think I also carry along with me um, all of the different, you know, aspects of the places I have lived in. So mostly Lagos, which is where I kind of cut my teeth, and then also parts of Europe that I lived in. Okay, okay. It, it, there's another, we had another guest on who left another country, and I said, you know what, It. I think it really takes courage to do that, not just moving to another city or another state, which is hard enough for a lot of us, but to go to another country where you don't know anyone. Now, Africa is known for really valuing education and having very bright students. I wanted to ask you, how has being educated in Africa continued to help you as you move forward with your career, both in and out of the arts? Well, I think um, I can actually just speak about being educated in Nigeria because Africa is such a large um, continent that it's um, it's kind of difficult to zone in on one aspect of mm-hmm. education on the continent. So, I mean, the Nigerian education uh, educational system is quite rich and diverse. We have a number of <clears throat> elements from other parts of the world, and then we've also kind of made it our own. And so, I mean, you have the equivalent of six years of elementary school, I mean, and in that you're exposed to, you know, different parts of the world. And I've always been fascinated by, you know, different cultures, literature and things like that. So that was where it started for me, reading Dickens and reading, you know, I remember reading Alex Haley's Roots when I was 11 years Mm. old. That was back in Lagos. I didn't have any business reading it that young because it fascinated me, but it also frightened me. And then years later, as an adult, I watched the movie and certain things, I was able to put certain things in place. So I think one of the um, beauties of having been educated from the beginning in Lagos was because I wasn't, you know, I mean, we did have exposure to the Nigerian history and culture, but we were also, you know, giving exposure to elements of other parts of the world. So um, certain things like I remember visiting D.C. for the first time, and I'd already read about, you know, the monument and other parts of the, the Lincoln Memorial. So it was good to see in in person those things that I had gleaned for the first time out of pages of the history book or from an encyclopedia. So I think it was a very positive experience. It was a very positive influence on me because I was already exposed and so it didn't seem strange and um, frightening as some things can be for you when you're seeing them for the first time. I think for me it's also been a blessing because I'm going back to what you said about Africa. <clears throat> Certain parts of Africa are not English-speaking, so you have the French-speaking part, and you also have parts of the of the continent where there are countries where they speak Portuguese. So when you talk about education, a lot of um, my counterparts from West Africa in particular were educated in French, and they were, you know, so French was the first language. And so it's kind of harder for them to navigate the system when they come to cross over to an English-speaking country because I'm not saying they haven't been exposed to certain things, but I think the language itself becomes a little bit of a barrier Uh. forward. So I'm thankful that, you know, English was the first language I ever spoke, and that enabled me to be able to, you know, expose myself and to be able to read certain things and be, you know, you never know what the future is preparing yes, for you. Yes, you said and, you know, that and I had no idea reading everything that I was reading that I would not believe in. Wow. An adult. Yes, so, now, 
Jola, did you always think you would become a novelist? And if not, what did you dream of becoming when you were a child? Okay, well, when I was much, much younger, I wanted to be a doctor. Okay. <laughs> um, and it was just, I think I just latched onto the word doctor, and that was what I thought I would see myself. But then as I grew older, and then I couldn't stand the sight of blood, and I was like, there definitely is no future for me in the medical <laughs> So that kind of took care of that. But in terms of writing, I um, I've always been very keen to express myself in writing. It's something that I can't even explain. I think it's something that's an innate quality that you know I can only attribute it to maybe when God was creating me. He said, "I'll make this one a writer because um, it so effortlessly." I never really saw myself as an author from the very beginning. I just knew that. Every year since I can remember, I'd always kept a journal where I would just, you know, express my thoughts, write small, short stories, that sort of thing, write my opinion about certain things. Um, I never really kept a diary per se. I, I know some young girls would keep a diary saying, this is what I did today. For me, it was always more of writing, saying, I mean, whatever was going on in the world or whatever music I was listening to. I liked to listen to a lot of Michael Jackson when I was growing up. And so it would be like how I felt listening to human nature or something like that, you know, where it took me to. And then eventually I knew that I would find myself doing something in the arts, definitely not something in the medical field. Um, And the rest is history. Okay, okay. So now we go, we move into... Your, your, and I love the title of your book. When did you start writing Terracotta Beauty, and what process did you use to create the book? Well, I mean, Terracotta Beauty, I always tell people, it came out of a series of happy coincidences. Um, so what had happened was um, I started writing on a blog, um, and that was, I want to say, maybe eight, nine years ago. And so... One of the blogs that I managed at the time was a blog called Lara Contris, which is in French, in English, it's translated as it's a French word and it's this, um, the female storyteller. And for me, it was kind of like um, a breakout of my comfort zone because in the past, I had shared my writing with friends and family. And they always said, you know, the token, oh, you're very good. And I would say to myself, yeah, you have to say that because you're saying it to my face. You don't want to offend me. I really didn't think that I was that good. I just knew that this is something that I enjoyed. So getting out of my comfort zone, I started to share some of my writing on um, Lara Contris, the blog. And I developed a small following, and everyone unanimously said, you need to get yourself an agent. You need to, you know, you need to publish these stories in a book. Don't give it to us for free. So I took several steps back and I said, hmm, do I want to take this gigantic leap of faith? You know, see what I can do and make something. So at that time, I had close to 20 short stories written, and some of them didn't make them their way into the book. So... um I decided that, you know, let me see what happens. It's an adventure. I mean, the only thing you can lose is not trying. So let's, you know. So I did know that even though some of the recommendations from um, the people who commented on my writing was to go and get an agent, but my life is busy enough as it is, and I guess I also had that fear of rejection that, okay, I, I, you know, I toil on this manuscript and I give it to this really busy agent who sees a million manuscripts a year and they say no. So I decided that the best option for me would be to go and see what I can do in terms of self-publishing. And so I did a lot of research. And while I was researching, I wanted to put the books, the stories together in a way that it looked like a book. It didn't look like something that was randomly written. So in the process, I had selected five stories which I thought could come together, and then two of them I wrote from scratch. And in, so I had seven stories in the book. Um, and then I, by that time, I had decided that I would use, use Create Space. All of my research led me to say that this is the one that kind of is tailored to my set of, you know, what I need to get done. And so from that moment, I think it took about 18 months, um, so, um, and then I, pu- I self-published, um, 
it's interesting because, I mean, and that's one of the reasons I'm on your radio show today. I realized that, you know, I went into it not knowing what it's held for me, but um, the creative, the amount of creative energy that you use to promote the book, because you, you write the book. Oh, too. my goodness. <laughs> oh, God. You never know what yes. to Especially, I mean, I mean, I think you can gather from what I'm saying is I didn't really write it to make money, but I also wrote it to expose myself. And so the amount of creative energy it takes to promote a book, I did not see that coming. I just thought, well, it's out there, it'll sell itself. No, I mean, if I'm going to give anyone any advice who's doing this for the first time, I'm going to say prepare yourself for, you know, the most vigorous marketing campaign that you can you know, you can imagine, because it's not just sitting down and writing the stories. You have to also start thinking about, okay, what am I going to do when this book is finally a living, breathing thing, and how am I going to get it out there? And it's been a great, wonderful journey, and I've learned a lot of lessons along the way. Wow. I thank you for sharing that, especially, you know, the the writing a book is the tough part, and we're going to cover that at the closer to the end of the show but then you got to get out there and market it. Now I know the book is set in Lagos, where you where you you you, you had your childhood, um, and you definitely have firsthand knowledge about the area. Can you tell our listeners what time period the book is set in, and um, are there are there real life uh, community or regional events that take place in the story that will help to educate uh, the reader as well? Well, um, some of the feedback that I've gotten from people who have never lived in Lagos, now the book is set during a very special time, not just in Lagos but in Nigeria. It's uh, during the period of military rule. And now it was a period of time when I want to say Nigeria was just beginning to find itself um, and there was a lot of clamor for democracy. It was like if unanimously most of the citizens in the country would say, if the military would go back to the barracks and we had our own elected government, then things would be better. And I don't want to say things aren't better. I want to say things are different now. There's a lot more accountability to elected leaders because you went and you put your vote. And I mean, there used to be jingles on the radio back in Nigeria that your vote is your power, use it wisely. So during the era of military rule, it was very oppressive. So the military, I mean, the military usually comes to power through a series of coups, and, you know, they do things quite differently. It's very regimented. So it wasn't, I want to say, business as usual. So, But I didn't want to focus too much on, simply because I probably do not understand the dynamics of military rule, I did not want to focus too much on the, you know, the rudiments of military rule. I wanted to focus more on the people and how they were able to live their lives in spite of the fact that things weren't exactly as comfortable as they should have been while they were there. So I wanted to show that the human spirit is still strong and even further strengthened in a, in a situation where people are being oppressed, people are not, you know, are not being treated rightly, you know, um, the government is not taking care of its people. You still have the triumph of the human spirit. So mm. a lot of it is set in a time period where people who lived in Lagos at that time will be able to relate to certain situations. Um, it's not. It is still a work of fiction. So, oh, okay. But, but still, it's not a historical analysis. It's not a histor. It's not kept. But it's still a work of fiction. It's um, stories coming from my imagination. But it's also anyone who lived in. It's during the. I want to say during the eighties. I didn't give a specific time period okay. in the book. But during the eighties and nineties was when we had the military rule. And okay. so um, that in itself is something that anyone who lived in Lagos or who had anything to do with Nigeria, I don't want to think that it's only Nigerians who would be able to gravitate towards the book. Right, right. I had a lot of feedback from some of my friends who are non-Nigerian and who never had to live through such a situation where they've said, my goodness, that I can't even begin to imagine how I would have been able to work through all of that. And it's kind of introspective because I also can't, I look back and I see some of the things that people were able to accomplish 
during that time. I, we were still going to school. We were still getting an education. It was just that we didn't have the democracy that we craved for. We didn't have our own leaders that we, you know, we could say, okay, yes, we chose them. What they're doing is to our benefit. Now, who can, can you introduce our off-the-shelf listeners to some of the main characters in the short stories included in Terra Cotta Beauty? And again, for our listeners who might be looking for it at Amazon, et cetera, it's T-E-R-R-A-C-O-T-T-A, Beauty is the title of the book. It's a compilation of short stories. Can you introduce us to some of the main characters who the readers readers could become really engrossed in and become so curious about these characters, they want to keep reading and learning more about them. Sure. So the title story is centered around, so that's Terracotta Beauty, which is the title story, is centered around um, a family um, who um, have a beauty salon called Terracotta Beauty. And the matriarch of that family, I think in creating that character, I infused all of the strong women that, you know, that surrounded me in in growing up in Lagos. So um, she is someone who has her own kids, but everyone, and I think everyone knows somebody like that. She's a mother to everyone, her kids, friends, you know, any anyone who comes her way. And that is kind of what I, I mean, her life wasn't easy either. She has had, she had to endure a number of struggles, that sort of thing. And I'm trying hard not to give too much away so that, you know, the listeners who would like to read the book can also, you know, discover on their own about the book. But she's one person I think that the listeners will be fascinated by. Um, and the reason I mention her is that one thing about the book, the stories in the book is that they're all connected. So all of the characters in the in the stories in the book are connected to each other one of, one way or the other. And she is the central character um, uh, in the book, and she kind of like is the magnet that's drawing everyone to her and to, you know, the events that take place through the stories in the book. Okay, okay. I, I'm glad I found out. So the family owns a beauty salon, and they own it at a time when democracy is not the the rule. It's under military rule in Lagos. So uh, do they clash? Does the family clash with the military uh, are they are they very independent type people uh where they the military comes in and either shuts them down or gives them a lot of trouble because they don't feel like they're doing everything they're telling them to do I'm trying to get a picture of the family and how they fit into the uh into the environment well quite the contrary I think one of the things like I said is that I didn't want to focus too much on how the military ruled I wanted to focus a lot more on how people were able to thrive on the military rule. And the reason I say that is um, the beauty salon, and this was a, this was in the time, this was something that was also prevalent during the time of military rule. In spite of the fact that people were being oppressed, in spite of the fact that people were having difficulty living their lives, people still, especially women, still wanted to look good. And that's the thing about Lagos women, that's the thing about Nigerian women, they still wanted to look good. So the beauty salon was kind of like a place where they would come to release their burdens and so while they were being, um, you know, while they were going through whatever it was, that, the motions of whatever it was that they were going through, they would still want to come and get their hair done. And then while they were getting their hair done, they would vent about, oh, it was so difficult for me, the prices, you know, to, to buy food from the market today, the prices of everything to just keep going up. Oh, my kids can't go to school now because the school's being shut down because it's a military school and they want to do things differently. So it was kind of a place where there was emotional release um, the matriarch that I mentioned um, opened the beauty salon on a whim, um, and I, like I said, I'm not going to try. I'm going to try not to give too much away. She opened it on a whim, and it was the way people gravitated towards it, the way people moved towards this, the salon in the neighborhood and from far-flung areas outside of the neighborhood. It shows kind of it captures the way people need somewhere to go and unwind. And so her character was the sort of character that would soothe your, you know, your your pain. And even as she's doing your hair, as she's working on your hair, you're, you just find yourself bringing out everything that you, all your pent-up angst, all your pent-up, you know, anger and, 
you go away feeling like you're looking good, and then you're also feeling good. Okay, okay, okay. Um, are any? I asked you before, and you said no. You really aren't basing some of the events in the story, and I think this is probably maybe equally or more so for people like myself who didn't grow up in Lagos, Nigeria, to see uh, how real life events would be intertwined, even though it's a work of fiction in the story. We had another guest who came on, and I forget, she wrote a story that went way back in the history of Africa, and some of the things she was telling me, it was very educational, even though she wrote, a, 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 it was a novel, but uh, that is, I, that, I find that intriguing, When, and I know you've done that in, your, in the Terracotta Beauty, where there's elements of the... You don't get engrossed in it, as you said, but elements of this is what it was like during this period. For people like myself who aren't from the area, I find that fascinating because I get to be entertained and I also get to learn at mm-hmm. the same time. Um, I wanted to ask you, when I look at the book's cover, and I love the cover of the book, is Terracotta Beauty, I know it's a compilation of short stories, is it written for, would you say, young adults like teens, or is it written for adults? I would say young adults. Um, if I was to put a number on the age of whoever could read it, um, I would say um, maybe from the age of 13. So, I mean, I think they would be able to read it and learn from it and understand what was being said. That being said, I have a 9-year-old and she's read it. But then she is a special case because she is reading way beyond her grade level. So um, I would say, I mean, parents, you know, can ask, you know, their younger kids to read it. But, I mean, you're a better judge. There isn't anything suggestive or profane in the book. It's very it's very child-friendly. But I guess the other thing that is, you know, you have to also wait with the mind of the child for them to be able to understand certain, you know, elements of, what we're trying to portray in the book. Um, so my recommendation would be from the age of 13 upwards. Um, is, uh, go ahead. No, I'm done. So age of 13 upwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, th- 13 and up. Is is Terracotta Beauty, does it, in, does it have characters in it, young people, uh, maybe pre-teen teens, who are empowered? You yes. can see that they're empowered. Do you have that? Because I know a lot, that's something that attracts a lot of young adults to see characters who are empowered. Actually, I'm thinking of, and I know your book is nothing like this, but I'm thinking of Harry Potter and I'm thinking of the Hunger Games where you've got young people who are empowered and those books have absolutely taken off. Do they have, Are there young characters in the book who you can see they they, they are empowered? So the first story in the book is called Old Boy, and that story is centered around a young boy who um, witnesses a home invasion, and that's another thing that used to happen. Well, it still happens. I mean, I think it happens everywhere in the world where, I mean, crime is prevalent, but he witnesses his house being invaded, his father being, you know, attacked by, you know, the invaders, and it's it's telling the story from his perspective, what he's feeling, what, you know, how he feels so helpless you know, seeing, you know, that happen. It's not said in a way that would traumatize a child, but it's said in a way where you can understand what a child is thinking, the emotional level, the emotional intelligence in a child, observing all these things. Thankfully, I mean, in, at the his father survives the, you know, the attack and everything, but there's a twist in the tale, which I, I don't want to give away, but it also gets you thinking. Um, so that is something I think older children will be able to relate to, um, and I'll just leave it at that. Okay, okay. I, again, as I said, I love the book cover. Who Thanks. designed the book cover? And can, for, for children's book authors, we know illustrations are very, that can be key, particularly now this book you said 13 and up, not so much so, but for younger children, illustrations throughout the book are very important because children need to give them the the written and the visual to help bring the story to life. Who who designed the book's cover, and what process did you go through to pick an illustrator for the cover? Okay, so like I said, when the time came for me to publish, I decided to use um, 
create space. What I didn't say though was create space. Um, they have a suite of services that they provide. So from writing assistance to editing to also graphic design. So I selected the graphic design because I can't draw to save my life. Um, so I didn't do it. So I worked with the team of graphic designers. Now Create Space provides excellent services, but the one thing about their services is that they're very impersonal. So I don't have the name of the person who actually drew the cover design. All I have is a series of emails from through a generic email address. And I think we had a couple of telephone conversations where we, you know, they were trying to get the idea I had on, in my head for the cover, you know. And so we had back and forth emails and a couple of conversations. So, um, but I think it's a testimony to the sorts of work that um, the folks at Create Space can do that they're able to come up with this. I mean, with this lovely cover design, I've received a number of compliments on it. And I was very particular about the cover design because as a new first-time published author, I knew that people are not necessarily going to gravitate towards the name Jolanoidi since it's an unknown name. So I wanted to put out something that would, you know, turn heads and make people look twice and say, hmm, I wonder what that is about. That's a very, you know, striking cover design. Let me let me Let me check out the book. And so I'm glad that we were able to successfully do that. Um, but, but yes, so um, Create Space, they will work with you. Um, it's a paid service, of course, so you have to, you know, ex you have to know what you want to do, and then share it with them, and then they come up with magic. <laughs> ah, do you have plans, Jola, to take any any of the short stories? and turn it into a full-length novel? Well, the thing about me is I think someone described it as I recycle my characters. And so rather than do that, I'm actually in the process of working on my second um, book, which this time will be a full-length novel. And without giving too much away, um, some of the characters that you see in Terracotta Beauty, um, the short stories, will reappear in the full-length novel. So I guess for me, once I create a character and I'm satisfied with the character, I want to see that character grow and move on. And the one thing that I'm always, I've always been fascinated by is the six degrees of separation. Um, mm. So um, you see the elements of that in the book, and I want to take that through to other books that I, other pieces of fiction that I write. Okay, okay. I can tell that you are um, what somebody said. I know we we write most artists. We want our work to sell, but you seem like a very true artist, a sincere, to the core artist. And I appreciate the work of of people who the the art, their developing of their art is their primary focus. Of course, you want to make money from it, but the primary focus. There are people who have things on the market that primary focus is to make money versus to create and tell a, um, an engaging story. And I think from you, it's your primary focus is to create that that the best story that you can create uh, for for yourself to enjoy and also for readers. That said, Jola, who who are some of the writers who've inspired you and influenced? Your your writing style and what is it about these authors' work that you appreciate the most? Well, I think for me, um, one of the things is when I started when I started taking my writing to the next level, so to speak. Um, I wasn't living in Nigeria, but I did want to write about Nigeria, in particular Lagos, and so I gravitated more towards writers who, you know, are living in the diaspora but are writing about, you know, the countries where they originated from. And so examples of those are the Indian author Humpa Lahiri. Um, she, I mean, she actually inspired me with her book of short stories called Interpreter of Maladies, which is an excellent book in which I recommend. Another author who I gravitated to was um, Amy Tan, um, so Miss Lahiri lives, I think she lives in Rhode Island, and she at one point she was doing a fellowship in Italy. But um, I don't think she's lived in India since she was a child. And the same goes for Amy Tan. She um, 
is Chinese, and she doesn't live in China. I, she, I believe she lives in San Francisco. But both of those authors I mentioned, I I've read most of what they've written, and I you know I could relate to the fact that you know even though physically they're you know outside of their home countries, their spirit still resides in this place where they you know their family originated from. You see the elements of the culture. And so even in some of the work that they're writing, they're writing about people who have been transplanted from, you know, India and who are now living in the United States and who are still holding on to their culture and, you know, and still making sure that elements of their culture are a part of their daily routine. And that, I think, is powerful because it's so easy for you to let go and be overwhelmed by the new place you call home. Mm-hmm. America is such, so rich. I mean, we just recently celebrated Thanksgiving, which I think is a wonderful holiday because it gives you a moment to, you know, to sit back and be thankful for, um, for all the things that you've gone through from, you know, over the year. And I, um, but we don't celebrate Thanksgiving in Nigeria, and so. Um, for me, every day is something you should be thankful for, but having yes. a special day to celebrate and, you know, give thanks, that, you know, so for you to embrace your new home's culture but still, you know, stand loyal and devoted to the culture from where you come from, that is powerful. And that, those are the sorts of things that I would like to capture in the writing. Um, mm-hmm. And so those are the authors who would influence me um, I mentioned to nobody else comes to mind, but I mean that's the sort of right reading that I read. I think it also helps you address the feelings of nostalgia because even though I haven't lived in Lagos for a long time, I still carry it with me in everything I do, everything I say, the way I think. Um, so yes. And you know what? I would imagine that over time, after you've lived in a in a, another country or in another culture for several years, you become in 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 messed in it. And you, I even uh, heard a um, woman man killer. She's a Native American, uh, and she's very re- highly respected uh, in the Native American culture. But mm-hmm. that was another thing. She said a struggle to maintain your own cultural identity and mm-hmm. not get really so absorbed. And another dominant culture that you, you, your 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 children and grandchildren they they know nothing about they they there's nothing left because it's all like like watching something get washed out into the ocean it just it just goes away so she said that is a struggle but they do try and and maintain you know you want to keep your own cultural identity and not get swallowed up in a larger culture and that's dominant in the area that you move to. I really appreciate that you do that because, we, we, I mean, what would the world look like if it was just one big same culture? We yeah. want to have our, you know, whether it's, it's through your food, your dress, the way you speak, your mannerisms, traditions. I just think it's good. It just makes us all richer, I think. Now, you said you published Terracotta Beauty through Create Space. I know they're owned by Amazon. I wanted to ask you, for our off-the-shelf listeners who might be considering doing that themselves, has has publishing Terracotta Beauty through Create Space has have you found that to help you sell more books online, especially through Amazon? Yes, I actually think so. Especially for me, you know, wide-eyed bushy tailed very wet behind the ears, not knowing exactly what to expect in this publishing journey. Um, having Create Space be a part of um, Amazon has been magical. So Amazon is, I mean, I think it's number one online place to buy books um, around the world now. And so the the, the minute the you know I got the you know gave the green light for the book to be published, almost like magic, it was up on Amazon. I wouldn't have known how to take it to Amazon myself. I probably would have had to do additional research if I had used another self-publishing, you know, outfit. That being said, I mean, I use Create Space because it works for me. I'm sure there are other um, self-publishing outfits out there that work for other people. And so um, 
it's helped a lot with the online sale. The one thing that I didn't do, and which I'm in the process of doing, um, and will be released just before Christmas, is the Kindle version of the book. I guess for me, I'm just really traditional when it comes to books, and so for my first book, I wanted it at least for six, the first six months to be out only in hardcover, and then um, right now I'm working on the process of getting a Kindle version of the book out. So that's another thing. Kindle is from Amazon, so the e-reader that you would get it on would be the Kindle, and so their their services are very self-explanatory. I mean, they don't do too much hand-holding to make you discover things yourself. But at the end of the day, some of the thing, most of the things that they have, help you with your sales. The one thing that I had to do on my own, and which I'd already alluded to previously, was in terms of the marketing. I mean, CreateSpace will help you, you know, for the services that with the services that you pay for. But when it comes to the marketing and the promoting of your book, you have to actually take ownership of that. You have to, you know, do it yourself. But it's such an enjoyable process that you won't find it painful at all. I mean, I get to meet people like you, Denise, and come on radio shows and things like that. So that is a blessing. That oh, is and it's a blessing to have you on. Was it? Did, would you say, without giving away how much it costs, that it was financially a smart move? Um, I think it was financially a smart move. I also think it was financially not too much of a burden. So I say that because you don't have to put a chunk of money down and expect things. So you can break it down. So for me, because I write, um, it wasn't difficult for me to write. But I can't edit what I write because I know it too well. It's too familiar to me. So you can, you know, pay for one set of um, services, which is the editing service, and then, you know, plan or save towards the next set of service, which is the graphic design. So you can actually break it down over time so that you're not, you know, breaking the bank. They're not going to say, you know, pay for everything up front and we'll start doing it. No, you decide, determine what it is that you, the services that you need, and you can start pay for that particular service at the time. And, I mean, the minute you sign up with CreateSpace, an agent calls you and, that's, and it breaks it down. They send you things in your email that you can read, and they break down what, you know, the services are and how long it will take, and they can work on your, you know, at your own pace. So it's not too expensive, but it's also to the point where you can actually find a way to, you know, put, you know, portions of the money over time so that you're not, you know, cleaning out your bank account just for this one project. Okay. I appreciate what you shared and uh, and I think that is a, is is a is a is a sufficient information that any of our off the shelf listeners can go and explore create space more if they wanted to. Of course there are other avenues that people can use to self publish books. Um can you share for us now that you've been uh, terracotta beauty's been on the market for at least a while, I'm sure you've learned things from when you got the idea to to take write the short stories, put them into a book form, and now you said you're working on a novel with some of the characters, and Terracotta Beauty will show up in the full length novel. But based on what you've learned so far, Jola, can you share three to five tips that writers can take advantage of that you found to be effective for you when marketing books? Well, I think one thing is you can't keep quiet. I mean, this is not something for a shy person to do. You need to talk to, and I, you have to actually look for someone. I don't want to use the word mentor. I want to say the word, you know, look for a buddy. Look for someone. And the thing about us writers or, or creative people, we like to share. We like to help. And so look for someone who has actually walked this road before. That's the first thing. Mm. Because that person will be able to share with you the lessons learned, even though bearing in their lessons learned, even though bear in mind that you will have your own specific set of lessons learned from your own journey. So that's the first thing um, that I would say. Buddy up with somebody who's done it before because that will give you an idea of what to expect and it will also give you, you know, outlets where you can begin with the marketing. The second thing I would say is that don't be too disappointed when, you know, you don't get what you expect from, I mean, for instance, the first month that the book comes out, everyone is raving about it, that sort of thing. 
But we have so many things that are grabbing our attention. So there will come a time when people will stop talking about your book. There will come a time when people will be like, oh, that, you understand. It's you that has to continue to make sure that it's in people's faces, that people are still talking. Christmas is coming now. I'm already working on an active marketing plan to bring it to people because even though you reach 10 people and those people could tell 10 other people, the 10 other people out there who need to know about your book. So don't be too disappointed and say, oh, why am I even doing this? Because the minute when they start talking about the book, that's when you need to start talking about it more so that your voice is heard and you give your book the exposure it needs. Then two words, social media. Since I've written the book, because of my schedule, I haven't had a reading or anything yet. There's a plan for that next year. But social media has definitely enhanced the visibility of the book. So I have a Terracotta Beauty Facebook community, which is, you know, active, where I put things on, people are engaged, people, I mean, it it shows, people, it shares what's going on with the book. Today I'm on the radio, it's already posted there. So use social media, not just Facebook, Twitter. And with social media, you'll also be exposed to other people. I mean, I have so many virtual friends now. I'm sure sometimes we pass each other on the street and we don't know who we are. And so that (laughs) is what I would suggest that you use, especially someone like me who, between work and family and everything, is just difficult. I mean, as exciting as it sounds to do like a multi-city book and be from one airport to the other, um, Mm. it can also be tiring, especially at this time of the year when you have the holidays. But at the same time, you don't want to lose the momentum of saying, oh, I'll wait till the summertime when we'll have time, then I'll go on a book tour. I mean, with the Internet, I think it's beautiful that you can actually sit in your home and still get what you want to do done in terms of exposing your, your art to other people. So, I mean, in summary... Definitely buddy up with somebody. Definitely don't keep quiet and then don't be too disappointed. And definitely use social media to the best of your ability because it will take you to places you never even imagined you could go to. Wow, thank you so much, Jolene. You know what, I want to just to piggyback on that. If you self-publish a book, you can keep it alive for as long as you want. I know yeah. m- most publishers, they, they'll hang in there with you for a couple of months, maybe a year tops. They really, I don't even think for a new writer that they'd hang in there with you for a year, but um, you start getting a bunch of returns back. But if you put it out yourself, you can just keep it and keep coming out with new books and keep mm-hmm. talking about the older books and keep coming out with new books. And just keep, that, that way you develop uh, um, you uh, a platform and your platform begins to grow. I have to tell we only have about eight minutes left. I wanted to ask you, I know when I was researching for your inter- this interview, it, I learned that you like to collect quotations. Mm. When and why did you start collecting quotations, Jola? I think it may have been in 1997. That's when I started collecting quotations formally. I mean, there would be times when I would, like I said, I kept a journal. I would read something in a magazine or a book, and I'd just jot it down. But then after a while, 1997 was when I now started compiling them. And, I mean, I have pages and pages of MS Word documents that have quotations. Um, And that is just something that inspires me a lot. Um, And something I... Can you share a few... Can you share a few... I'm sorry. Can you share a few quotes with us that... You said you have pages and pages. If any jump out at you, they might jump out at us, and they might really influence, impact somebody in a in a very moving way. A few quotes that you've come across that have really, really moved you. Well, some of the powerful ones that I, I mean, I really relate to. Uh, you educate a woman, you educate a world, and so ah. it just goes back to, you know, when you give a woman money um, for education or when you give a woman an an opportunity to be educated you're you're also giving her um her family that education yes. and so that i think is powerful especially coming from where i come from where girls education has always been contentious where it's more like you know you're raising them to become the wives and the mothers and not the ceos and the bankers and i know you know it's a very controversial um, subject, but that for me is powerful, and I think a lot more people, especially people in government, need to pay attention to that 
educate mm-hmm. a woman, you educate a world. Um, so that's one powerful one. The other one I love, and I just recently discovered it, is never lose your sense of wonder. Um, mm. When it comes to your imagination, don't let it, you know, dissipate or die down. There's such a big world out there. So, and I, I use that quote when it comes to, you know, mentoring, so to speak, writers. I think it's also a very good quote for those writers who are struggling to come out, you know, who are struggling with writer's block. Um, another powerful one is um, courage does not always roar. Courage is that small voice uh. at the end of the day which is saying, I'll try again tomorrow. Uh. And okay. I actually use that quote a lot when I'm promoting this book because it shows the spirit of the people that I in Lagos, the essence of Lagos is its people. And knowing that during that time, they weren't always successful in everything that they did simply because of things not being the way they should have been laid out. But that determination to say tomorrow is another day, that in itself is, you know, courage personified. It's not the person who goes out and has all the brawn and, you know, that for me is, it takes a great deal of courage. Mm, knowing that yeah, I would mm-hmm. I would agree. Oh my God, what quotes? Thank you. I'm so glad I asked you that. What wonderful quotes and in the way you you explain them or or, dis, or discuss them. I really really appreciate that. I've got to ask you because we only have about three minutes left. Where can off the shelf listeners get a copy of Terracotta Beauty? And can you let us know when your novel, when you think it might be on the market? So the novel will come out in 2016, so there's a bit of a wait for that. Terracotta Beauty is available on Amazon.com, so it's Terracotta Beauty. I also um, am giving away two copies of the book to the first two listeners who write to you, and they can get that by going to jolanoibi.com, and if you go slash books, so you can actually get signed copies of the book um, from my website. Um, the Kindle version of the book is coming out in time for Christmas. I'll announce the actual date on the Terracotta Beauty Facebook community when that time comes. Um, so that's it. I mean, I know some people prefer to e-read, so now you'll have the e-version of the book so you can e-read because there have been a lot of demand for that. And can you let us know socially? We know you're on Facebook because you have the Terracotta Beauty Facebook page when, you, when you're going to give out more information about the novel and different things that are coming up. But can you let us know any other social media networks that you're on? I'm on Pinterest, um, Pinterest slash Jolanoibi. I'm also on Twitter at Jolanoibi. Um, I think that I'm also on Instagram, even though I don't use it as frequently as I should. I mean, like I said, I'm just discovering social media through the promotion of the book, it's great. I mean, the energy that's on social media is, you know, matchless. So look for me on, on all of those, and then we'll be able to connect. We want to thank Jola. No, say your last name for me, please, very slowly. I don't. I want to get it right. <laughs> that's fine. You did a great job, Miss Naibi. Jola Naibi, you are, I'm telling you, you are an awesome guest. We've had a lot of guests on, and you you are up there was one of my favorites. I mean, I appreciate every guest, but you are really a very engaging guest, and I hope that to hear you on other um, radio, television interviews, you're, you're a very good guest. So I want to thank Jola for her time, and again for being flexible as we had to reschedule due to um, my electricity being out a couple of weeks ago. And I want to thank all of our off-the-shelf listeners. I know it's the holidays. So a lot of people will tune into the archives because you're still on your long time off from work. For those of you who didn't have to go to work Thursday, Friday, and now it's Saturday and you're enjoying your weekend and maybe still hanging out with your family. For those who tuned in and off the shelf, we want to thank you. Please tell, because the archives will be up today, tell your family, your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, everybody who who loves art and who just values community, tell them to tune in to Off the Shelf and listen to today's interview with Jola Naibi. 
author of Terracotta Beauty, and her new her full length novel will be out in 2016. But you can get Terracotta Beauty at Amazon in print form now, and in Christmas you can get a Kindle version again of Terracotta Beauty. And I'm going to spell the author's name again. It's J O L A N A I B I. J-O-L-A-N-A-I-B-I. So when you go look for the book, and it's spelled T-E-R-R-A-C-O-T-T-A, Beauty, Terracotta Beauty by Jola Naibi, you can you can find the book easily. She's on Facebook. Please support her. Uh, I, I truly enjoy today's show. And as I always tell all of you off-the-shelf listeners, you are so amazing. You're so incredible. You're awesome. And I hope that one day you really, really, really get that down into your being and you, you really see that. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Thank you for being here with us. Please tell folks, you know, to tune in to Off the Shelf Radio Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. or Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself again. Nobody else, uh, Jola, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye.